people around you, the things you experienced as a youth. And they are deterministic upon you as a person. They will decide what you will be like. Um, and this has really been made worse, exacerbated by genetic studies. And now we have people saying, well, I'm genetically predisposed to this um, in all sorts of funny areas, not just the homosexual community saying that, that that's a big area. Um, but we have people that, you know, I'm genetically predisposed to lying. Well, yes, you technically are because your father was a sinner and you've inherited sin from your father. Um, but that wasn't a genetic inheritance. That was federal, the, the seminal headship of Adam. And so we've all sinned in Adam. And so what we have here is an opportunity to look at two individuals raised in the same circumstances that both are illegitimate sons, both are going to have conflict with their uh, half-siblings, um, and both are going to be maltreated. And yet, one becomes one, a, a judge that is honored by God, and the Spirit of the Lord is going to fill him, as we're going to see, that's going to be a critical passage. The other one is going to live for himself, be a murderer, and, and, and be used of God not to, to really lead Israel, but to judge Israel. In, in terms of punishing her uh, and becomes a place of cursing and not a blessing. And so we have two people who grew up with essentially the same background, the same environment, if you will, one under Gideon, one under Gilead. Uh, and so here comes Jephthah on the scene. What do we find about him? Again, comparable to Bimelech, both are mighty men of valor. These are, these are not weaklings. And so they um, are going to have that in common. And we're also going to find something in common about them is that they both are fairly intelligent. They uh, have reasoned through some things. And we're going to see Jephthah's reasoning skills and his, his uh, expertise with even Israeli history and being able to go through and really uh, deal with the legal arguments um, for Israel's right to the land. And so we're going to see that. And of course we saw with Abimelech, he used his mental capacities not for good, but for deception. And so he went in and he figured out how to uh, deceive, and he, and he set himself up much like Absalom to would do later. And, and uh, he was uh, engaging with the... the uh, other and making enemies, but it was all very conniving. It was, it was a lot of strategy and thought put into it. And so these men had very comparable histories, very comparable attributes, but yet two very different perspectives scripturally. Um, and there is, of course, within the account of Jephthah, some tragedy as well, just as there was some tragic elements at the end of Abimelech um, and with the, his death there at the hand of a woman, essentially. Um, and so let's go ahead and look at this. This is Judges 11. And uh, we're going to, uh, we're not going to read chapter 12. It includes 12, 1 through 7, but I wanted to go ahead and read uh, chapter 11 in case you're not that familiar with the uh, judgeship of Jephthah. Verse 1 says, Now Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty man of valor. He was a son of a harlot, and Gilead begot Jephthah. 
Gilead's wife bore sons, and when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall have no inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. Then Jephthah fled from his brothers and dwelt in the land of Tob, and worthless men banded together with Jephthah and went out raiding with him. It came to pass after a time that the people of Ammon made war against Israel. And so it was when the people of Ammon made war against Israel that the elders of Gilead went to get Jephthah from the land of Tob. Then they said to Jephthah, Come and be our commander, that we may fight against the people of Ammon. But Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, Did you not hate me and expel me from my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you are in distress? And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, That is why we have turned again to you now, that you may go with us and fight against the people of Ammon and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. So Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, If you take me back home, to fight against the people of Ammon, and the Lord delivers them to me, shall I be your head? And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, The Lord will be a witness between us if we do not do according to your words. Then Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and commander over them, and Jephthah spoke all his words before the Lord in Mizpah. Now Jephthah sent messengers to the king of, Ammon, uh, king of the people of Ammon, saying, What do you have against me that you have come to fight against me in my land? And the king of the people of Ammon answered the messengers of Jephthah, Because Israel took away my land when they came up out of Egypt, from the Arnon as far as the Jabbok, and to the Jordan, now therefore restore these lands peaceably. So Jephthah again sent messengers to the king of Ammon, and said to him, Thus says Jephthah, Israel did not take away the land of Moab, nor the land of the people of Ammon. For when Israel came up through Egypt, they walked through the wilderness as far as the Red Sea, and came to Kadesh. Then Israel sent messengers to the king of Edom, saying, Please let me pass through your land. But the king of Edom would not heed. And in like manner they sent to the king of Moab, but he would not consent. So Israel remained in Kadesh. And they went along through the wilderness and bypassed the land of Edom and the land of Moab, came to the east side of the land of Moab, and encamped on the other side of the Arnon. But they did not enter the border of Moab, for the Arnon was the border of Moab. Then Israel sent messengers to Sion, king of the Amorites, king of Heshbon, and Israel said to her, Please let us pass through your land into our place. But Sihon did not trust Israel to pass through his territory. So Sihon gathered all his people together and camped against Jahaz and fought against his camp in Jahaz and fought against Israel. And the Lord God of Israel delivered Sihon and all his people into the hand of Israel, and they defeated them. Thus Israel gained possession of all the land of the Amorites. Who inhabited that country. They took possession of all the territory of the Amorites from the Arnon to the Jabbok and from the wilderness to the Jordan. And now the Lord God of Israel has dispossessed the Amorites from before his people Israel. Should you then possess it? Will not you possess whatever Shemash your God gives you to possess? So whatever the Lord our God takes possession of before us, we will possess. And now, are you any better than Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab? Did he ever strive against Israel? Did he ever fight against them? While Israel dwelt in Heshbon and its villages, Arior and its villages, and all the cities along the banks of the Arnon, for 300 years, why did you not recover them within that time? Therefore I have not sinned against you, but you wronged me by fighting against me. May the Lord the judge render judgment this day between the children of Israel and the people of Ammon. However, the king of the people of Ammon did not heed the words which Jephthah sent to him. Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh, and passed through Mizpah of Gilead, and from Mizpah of Gilead he advanced toward the people of Ammon. 
And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord. And he said, if you will indeed deliver the people of Ammon into my hands, then it will be that whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the people of Ammon shall surely be the Lord's, and I will offer it up as a burnt offering. So Jephthah advanced toward the people of Ammon to fight against them, and the Lord delivered them into his hands. He defeated them from Aror, that place, as far as Mineth, 20 cities, and to Abel, Karamim, with a great, very great slaughter. Thus the people of Ammon were subdued before the children of Israel. When Jephthah came to his house at Mizpah, there was his daughter coming out to meet him with timbrels and dancing, and she was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. And it came to pass when he saw her that he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low. You are among those who trouble me, for I have not, I have given my word to the Lord, and I cannot go back on it. So she said to him, My father, if you have given your word to the Lord, do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth, because the Lord has avenged you of your enemies, the people of Ammon. Then she said to her father, Let this thing be done for me. Let me alone for two months that I may go and wander on the mountains and bewail my virginity, my friends and I. So he said, Go. And, and he sent her away for two months, and she went with her friends and bewailed her virginity on the mountains. And it was so at the end of two months that she returned to her father, and he carried out his vow with her which he had vowed. She knew no man, and it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went four days each year to lament the daughter of Jephthah the Gileadite. So we're going to stop there. We're not going to look at the uh, next account of the engagement with Ephraim, but we are going to address it here tonight. So we find Jephthah um, in this condition, being driven out, and uh, instead of uh, raising up a rebellion against his half-siblings, he simply displaces himself, and um, it says that he was able to gather some worthless men around him. And you and I look at that, well, how can he be a man of God and do that? Uh, let me remind you that uh, that's kind of how David's army was formed. <laughs> Same thing. And it's not, worthless doesn't mean that they were, they were necessarily wanting to do wrong as much as they were cast outs of society. Many of David's were identified as criminals and uh, wanted men, um, but they were also just cast outs. They were men that, that others that, that weren't um, given opportunities within the land. And so he gathers them together, they do raiding parties, um, and the evidence here is that it wasn't against Israelites that they would raise their hand, but against their enemies. And so he had gotten some reputation. And so we, at this point, they're pretty much almost in the identical condition. Abimelech has his guys around him that are loyal to him and uh, have some relationship with Ammon. Um, and you have Jephthah, and he's got his group, his loyal group. Uh, and both kind of operating independently, and, uh, but from here on out, they diverge. And so there is the dilemma. Again, same dilemma. Uh, that we're going to have, um, the, that there's going to be opposition that God raised up to judge, to uh, punish, and to bring Israel to uh, repentance. Um, and Jephthah is not going to lead a rebellion. He is approached by the people of Gilead. They recognize his tactical strength. His, he's a man of valor. He has some wisdom. He, and whatever he's doing with his band of worthless men, um, it has attracted them to realize this is a man who is capable of leading. And 
he has the respect of the people, uh, if not for his birthright, certainly for his capacities. And so we find him very differently than Abimelech responding. And uh, so we find uh, them coming to him, and he has a series of questions for them. He says, now wait a minute. You drive me out of your cities, but now you come to me and want your aid, want, want my help. What's that all about? Um, and they make an offer. They say, yes, that's true. We did do that. And so now, if you come and help us, we will make you our head over us. And then he asks the question, really? He really says, is that really what you're going to do? Or you just want my help now? And as soon as it's clear, you're going you're gonna to turn your back on me again and drive me away. He wants to know, are you sincere? And given this morning's message, you can understand why in Israel. You want to know what someone else if they're sincere. So he makes him swear an oath, and, and oaths and vows are really important to Jephthah, as you know from the rash vow he made, or maybe not so rash vows, we're going to see. And so uh, these are real important to Jephthah, which reveals something about his character. What you're going to see throughout this is that he is, while he's been driven out from his people, he has not abandoned his God. He still considers himself under the authority of Jehovah, he still recognizes and serves Jehovah from what we can tell. And so we don't find him filled with animosity or bitterness or hatred toward God. Um, he's not bloodthirsty for the blood of his brothers or of the city or the region of Gilead, but rather he simply is distrustful of them as he should be, the way they treated him. And so he says, if we're going to do this, you're going to have to um, oath, you're going to have to swear. To, to do your end, and not swear to me, and not swear in front of each other. You're going to have to swear this before God himself. And so they all travel together down to Mizpah. And why Mizpah? Well, they're going to Mizpah because this is the place in Gilead where you have an opportunity to swear before the Lord. And so he takes them down there, and he says, now you're going to swear this before the Lord, that you're going to establish me not just as your deliverer today, but you're going to listen to what I have to say. You're going to follow my leadership, here on out. And so we find that he is calling Israel to a place of taking oath before the Lord. And he's going to reference Jehovah multiple times in just a very, really just one account, a couple of accounts. We're going to get into Ephraim here a little bit. And uh, he's, he's going to demonstrate he has a lot of understanding of what God has done for Israel historically and that God will hold him to these vows. These oaths, in Jephthah's mind, count. God is listening. As soon as you have God in the equation, um, you have an expectation that the vows will be kept. It's true that he applies it to the people of Gilead, but it's also true he applies it to himself. He doesn't hold himself as the exception to the rule. If you vow something to the Lord, you will keep it. And so he takes the people of Gilead down to Mizpah, and they declare, yes, before the Lord, here at Mizpah, we will follow Jephthah wherever he goes, and however he leads us. And once that is accomplished, once that is done, um, we find Jephthah just immediately taking over. And so in verse 11, it says, Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and commander over them, and Jephthah spoke all his words before the Lord in Mizpah. So he wanted all this to be laid out on the table. Um, 
not just in a public setting, but in an audience before God in, a, in a, this holy place. So that we could say, this is before, not just a, a covenant between you and me, it's a covenant between you and God and me and God. And so this is where his heart was, very different than Abimelech. Um, this is a man that wanted to do things right. He wanted to follow the Lord. And you don't find bitterness and animosity there. Bitterness is not the result of your life experiences. Bitterness is a choice. Abimelech and Jephthah had the same life experiences. One became bitter and bloodthirsty, and the other one was not. In fact, he even tries to settle this matter without fighting. This is a man that was mighty man of valor. He was very capable, had capable people around him, had great uh, tactical uh, capacities, but he was a man of peace. He wasn't bloodthirsty at all, which makes his vow later even more significant. Um, and so uh, your bitterness, your animosity, um, is not based upon your experience. Um, it is based upon a decision you take about those experiences. And so when you look at uh, some biblical examples, let's try to take both sides of this. I think a good biblical example comparable to Jephthah here um, with some really bad childhood experiences would be Joseph. Right? Um, betrayed by his brothers, you know, sold into slavery, made a slave, and then falsely accused, and, and then he goes to jail, and then he's forgotten in jail. I mean, the guy has every reason to be bitter, but he has no bitterness in him. He's willing to serve Pharaoh, help all the Egyptians, which includes Potiphar's house. I don't think he, he took his revenge against that house. Um, he, when his brothers show up, he doesn't take revenge against them. He is touched in his heart and wants to serve them. Um, and uh, he, he, he wants to make sure their heart's in the right place, which is what Jephthah does here. You know, when Joseph tests his brothers, it's very comparable to Jephthah saying, uh, Do you really? Are you really sorry? Do you really want me to lead you? Let's go before the Lord. And so very comparable to test those. Um, and I think that's an important principle that we have lost. There's a lot in the Christian community say you have to, if you're going to get beyond bitterness, you have to forgive your enemies. Um, and that's just not a biblical thing. If that's true, then God must be the most bitter person uh, in existence. Because he has not forgiven everyone everything. He forgives those who are sorrowful and repent. He holds to account, without bitterness, you can hold to account those who are not sorrowful and not repented. Correct? So don't confuse bitterness with wrath or with holding people to account. And so um, there's that example. Joseph becomes a great example. I'm going to test you guys to see if you are genuine. And, and the ultimate test is when Judah says, um, you know, you have to take me. You cannot take my little brother because, you know, his brother of his mother is gone and uh, he's the only one left of, of Rachel's line. So take me instead. And that's all it takes. Now he knows the spirit has changed among his brethren. And so now he reveals himself, he opens himself up. And so he tests it. And Jephthah's testing the people. You know, are you just doing this because you're in trouble or are you, are you really ready to allow me 
to lead you as a, your true head. And so um, what distinguishes this in terms of your life experiences and, and bitterness? And by the way, the New Testament does say root out or take out, remove every root of bitterness, which implies that you have control over it. It is not dictated by your experiences. Oh, I had this bad thing happen. Urgh, I'm bitter. I can't wait to get back at them. Um, um, and that's bitterness. And God says, root that out. Rip those roots out of your life. They don't belong there. They are not Christian. They are not right. And, they are, and you have control over them. Now, do bad things happen? Yes, very bad things happen even to children and young adults that are victimized. And the question that happens is, well, you carry the scars of that. Yes, you, you cannot just make those things disappear, although it's incredible the capacity God gives children to vacate those experiences from their memory until they are mature enough to deal with them, maybe sometimes in their 30s even, 20s, 30s, 40s, before they remember what happened to them as a very young child. And I think we do a disservice to the children to, for the psychologists to try to ferret it out of them and make them remember things before they're ready emotionally to deal with them. And so there is just even that capacity among the very young victims to just block it out. They don't even remember it until they're much older uh, and ready to, to consciously deal with it um, properly. And so we have these negative experiences, even into adulthood. What prevents us from going into bitterness? Well, it's not forgiveness. Forgiveness is not the solution to bitterness. It just isn't. Um, so, was he bitter in his statements towards them? No. He, was he distrustful? Yes. He was distrustful because of his experience. He knows these guys have maltreated him. He had no they had no cause to do what they did to him. Uh, they supported his brothers instead of him and helped them drive him out of the region. Um, he knows his life has been hard because of them, and he's going to hold them accountable um, and so he doesn't have a good reason to trust them, and he shouldn't um, to perpetrate this again on him. And thus he takes it to the Lord, which is a very important part of removing bitterness or to prevent bitterness from even happening. Um, so we take it to the Lord. But we see him that he doesn't trust them, but he's not embittered against them. He's willing to lead them. He's willing to deliver them from their enemies. And if he was embittered against them, he would just sit back and say, no, let's see the Ammonites wipe the floor with you first. But he doesn't do that. And this is the spirit of Joseph, the spirit of Jephthah, that God wants within his people. How do we make that happen? We make that happen um, by recognizing that um, we should have a spirit to know that people do evil. And that is something that God deals with. God is their judge, not me. So first of all, I put God in the place of judge, and not in the place of collaborator. Too many people, when they have bad experiences, blame God. God didn't do that to you. How did God allow that? Well, men do evil. God says, I will judge that, and it will happen. It will occur. And so um, the child abuser, the rapist, the, the, the person that, that uh, spread rumors about you, uh, 
whatever, um, uh, they are simply living out sin. And sin has victims, always. And God has promised to be the judge of all of that. And we need to recognize, first of all, we give them to God and say, God, judge them. And I think some of those imprecatory psalms are wonderful, where David says, Lord, kill them all. <laughs> Make them miserable. Throw their children against the rocks. You know, and we go, how could, you know, this is what Christians pray? Sometimes. What is he saying? I don't want to be bitter. You take care of them. God, I give them to you. You take care of them. You hold them to account. You judge them for this. But within the context of giving them over to God, we also recognize that God is merciful and gracious that if they are sorrowful and repent, that there is deliverance for their sinful heart too. And so we do not join them in sin by embittering ourselves against them, but rather we turn them over to God, and God, you know, the condition of their heart is no different than my heart, and I needed you, and they need you, and so uh, I've accepted you, they have not, so God, if they don't accept you, you judge them, and God's a lot better at judging people than you and I are. He's a lot better at punishing than you and I could ever be. Um, you can shoot somebody, but God can make them suffer for eternity. You know, um, God's much better at it. So turn your enemies over to him like David did. You know, Lord, you see what they're saying. You see what they're doing. Take an account. Hold it up against them if they don't repent. And, uh, and so that needs to be our response. God, you're the judge. And not blame God for the event, but rather give that to God and say, God, you deal with these people. And now you've been released from that sense of I have to take it in my own hands. And I know that that's real. I've had that in my life. I'm going to take it, I'm going to get even. Um, <laughs> that's what, how bitterness comes out as revenge. Um, and no, I'm not going to do that. I love how David, um, when he's dying and uh, really old, takes his son, Solomon, who's ready to become a king, and he says, um, Solomon, there's a few people that did me a lot of injury. I'm just going to tell you who they are. Deal with them as you should, as enemies. Um, and he lists them off. You know, one guy that cursed him when he was running away from Absalom and uh, all these people that did injury. And Solomon puts them under notice when he becomes king and he gives them conditions. As long as you stay in the city of Jerusalem, your life is yours, but as soon as you leave, you're a dead man. The guy goes to chase a slave that ran away or something, and he comes back, and he's dead. And so there's, he, he put those conditions out, and he just took care of them. And so what is David doing? Does he have bitterness? No, he's holding them accountable. And that is often confused with bitterness. I want, they should be held accountable. So I do not trust them because they're still sinners, and I believe they should be held accountable, which means that if they get caught, it, uh, I'm going to be part of the judicial system to have them judged, to have them convicted. Um, and so this idea that we, if you don't forgive, you're gonna, it's going to victimize you all your life is just not true. It's a bunch of hogwash. Okay, so Jephthah says, I'm not going to trust you, but if you've changed your heart, let's take this before God and, and, uh, and let's make this happen. And that is the spirit of giving things over to God. And I, I try this way. God doesn't call you to forgive everyone. He calls you to have a forgiving spirit ready to forgive any who are sorry. And that's different. 
Now, again, you and I can be deceived because we can't see into the heart. People can say they're sorry, not be sorry. So there needs to be fruits of repentance, the Bible says. There should be evidence that they're generally sorry. And so Jephthah is going to not become bitter. He's not becoming bloodthirsty. He's not going to get revenge, or, and he's not seeking his own. But, and we see some distrust there, but he's not embittered against the people. He will lead them. He will deliver them. He will call them to God. And he uses uh, the idea that God is your judge as probably the key to that. So you're not determined by the experiences of your life, whether you're bitter or not. You have a decision to make about that. And it doesn't involve you carte blank forgiving people. There are lots of people who have sinned against me and I have not forgiven them. There are people who have sinned against this church and we have not forgiven them. Why? Because they haven't asked us to. They haven't repented. They haven't been sorry. They, they, they have not confessed. And so we hold them accountable. And part of that accountability is church discipline, that we aren't going to eat with them. We're not going to fellowship with them. We're not going to do that because they're guilty, and they have not repented. They have not um, turned. And so um, we aren't holding it against them as an embitteredness. I'm not bitter towards them. I would love for them all to repent and be here next Sunday, crying our eyes out and saying, oh, I was so sinful and, God and godless and so evil. Um, please forgive me, and I don't want to ever do that stuff again. I would love for that to happen. But until that happens, I will hold them to their acts of sin. And so that's the difference. And so that's gonna, so it's not a bitterness to be non-forgiving. The world has tried to paint it that way, but it really isn't a biblical thing, and it's not true, and God is our best example of that. So Jephthah is ready to lead them. And so now we go into, well, how does he do it? Oh, my time is almost gone. How did this happen? Um, so it happened this morning, too. I don't know what's going on. The clock is doing weird things. Um, so Jephthah is going to have a great engagement with, I'm going to take two weeks on Jephthah, sorry. There's just, I can't even begin to touch what he does with his daughter in the next chapter. So uh, Jephthah goes to the king of Edom, and he doesn't, he's not going to fight him. He doesn't raise up an army. He just says, uh, what is your beef? Why are you coming over here? And now notice how he takes it personally. You're fighting against me and my people. He has taken ownership. This guy is ready to lead. Uh, he is capable leader. And I'm not saying Abimelech wasn't a capable leader. I think he was, but he was bitter and bloodthirsty. And Jephthah isn't. And so he comes and he says, what's the deal? And the king of Ammon said, well, you should just surrender this territory peaceably because it belonged to us in the olden days. He's like, uh, you better check your history books. The king of Ammon wants to rewrite history. And he says, this is our territory. And he's like, uh, 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 uh. So let's go back. Let's go back. And uh, Jephthah recounts the history and it's kind of interesting, <laughs> he, he, and he has his time period um, almost right on. In verse 26, he says, listen, this happened 300 years ago. What, what, what's the deal now? And that's almost exactly how long it's been. It's almost, if you add up all of the judges and everything, it's been 300 years. He said 300 years ago, you know, we go back to before Joshua, you go back to all these and that's why when we get in the later chapters of, Josh, or of Judges, we know that those were not chronologically after this because we're going to talk about one of um, Moses' grandchildren. Well, that's not 300 years later, right? And so we know that those events in the later chapters of Judges happened earlier 
and, and become kind of a bookend for Judges where we talk about what was it like at the beginning and end and then here's the period of Judges in between. And so um, we're going to uh, uh, see this history played out. And he says, here's what happened. And we came up and we didn't go through Moab and, and uh, they wouldn't let us through and Edom wouldn't let us through and we're just trying to pass through to get and then the, this guy... The Amorites were the ones who were in the land, not you Ammonites. The Amorites, and so we fought them, we destroyed them, and they're gone from the planet. By the time Jephthah's age, there were no Amorites anymore. God displaced them. That was that they aren't found anymore on the earth. They're gone. And so there are no Amorites. He says, we took possession of this whole region that was Amorite territory, and... uh, and if you guys thought you had a right to it somehow, you should have invoked that years and years ago. Um, you've had 300 years to invoke your right to it. Can you imagine? Well, actually, we do see that happening right now. Where we have a right to this whole country uh, 200 years later uh, by some of our Native Americans. But um, uh, you should have invoked that much earlier. And on the argument comes verse 23. The Lord God of Israel has dispossessed the Amorites from before his people. Should you then possess it? Will, not, will you not possess whatever Shemosh your God gives you to possess? So whatever the Lord our God takes possession of before us, we will possess. And so he understands. His, he has perfect, clear understanding of what was going on. Listen, we didn't conquer this land. God did. Look at that. Do you see that? The Lord took possession of it and then gave it to us. This was the Lord's doing. Now remember, they conquered this area before the book of Joshua. This is under Moses' leadership this happened. And so he, he's, he's uh, saying, listen, um, you know, if your God gave you victory, you'd claim that land from then on. Uh, so God gave us this victory, and so how can you think we should dispossess it, that you have a right to it. You have no legal right to this, so just get lost. And we have a great legal argument that could still be used today for the region of Gilead, which belongs to the country of Jordan right now, not Israel, as well as a legal argument for all the land of Israel that Israel possesses. They have a legal argument. This argument of Jephthah could still be used today. It really could that this is their land. Uh, God gave it to them. And so, of course, the king doesn't pay any attention to that. Um, And so Jephthah says, well, verse 29, very important verse. Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah. He passed through Gilead, Manasseh, passed through Mizpah. He's going back to that place where he can make a vow. He's going back to the place of consecrating himself to this job. He forced the leaders of the tribe to come and to make that vow before God in Mizpah. Now he's going to go before Mizpah, go to God at Mizpah, make a vow. Um, He is preparing himself for battle. He is gathering the people of the tribes that are on, remember this is the east side of the Jordan River, Gilead is, and so the other tribes are on the other side of the river, and so he's gathering his troops from right there in the region, And there he goes, and he is ready to go. But notice the Spirit of the Lord is upon him. Never heard that about Abimelech, right? But Jotham, or Jephthah, does have the Spirit of the Lord upon him. And given the condition that he is in, 
he is now filled with the Spirit, and we immediately know things are going to happen. Powerful things are about to happen. Um, and, but Jephthah, in this condition, makes the vow. We're going to talk about the vow next week, because my time is up. But uh, we know that uh, he goes out, he defeats them, um, and uh, subdues them, and it says, with a very great slaughter. And so, um, but notice in verse 32, the Lord delivered them, the Ammonites, into his hands, into Jephthah's hands. Um, throughout this very different verbiage than we saw under Abimelech, the Lord was with him. Spirit of the Lord filled him, the Lord gave him victory, um, and everything is really good. Um, was the vow necessary? No, the Spirit of the Lord was already upon him before he ever vowed. And that is a very important statement we need to make. Um, you don't need vows for God to work in your life. We'll discuss that a lot more next week. You don't need those. And we're also going to discuss, did he actually sacrifice his daughter? Um, and I think we have soft-pedaled this in our modern era because we're just not comfortable with um, the idea of killing one of your kids. Um, but uh, we're going to try to address that. And, um, but the vow wasn't necessary. He already had the Spirit of the Lord upon him. He would have had the victory whether he vowed or not. Uh, but for Jephthah, this is um, him consecrating himself, he believes, to this job, to this endeavor. And so he lays it out there, and he didn't need to do this, um, but in, in his way of thinking, um, he knows that uh, he wants to be dependent upon the Lord, but he also wants to be accountable to the Lord. And so he goes to Mizpah to establish himself as being accountable to the Lord for his leadership. And Lord, I'm looking for your blessing, but I'm also making myself accountable to you in this vow format that he has forced the Gileadites to do toward before the Lord for him. He's now saying, I'm hold this is necessary for me. And so he also recognizes that there is a wishy-washiness in men's hearts. And for Jephthah, his m m way of thinking was the way to eradicate that wishy-washiness is through making vows before the Lord. And when we come to the New Testament, of course, what does it tell us? You don't have to make those vows, but you have to mean what you say. Let your yes mean yes. Let your no mean no. And that means that you have to have a character of trustworthiness. You, uh, even trusting yourself, you have to have a character of someone who keeps their word, that's honest, that's thoughtful. And if that is your character, you don't need vows. If your yeses are yeses and your noes are noes. If you mean what you say, you don't need that. And the Lord doesn't require that of you. And uh, so, but in Jephthah's mind, Maybe because of his history a little bit, tainting his thinking, he feels it necessary that if you're going to stay the course, you need to take these oaths before God. Because even his family hasn't been honest with him and faithful toward him. And so he is not a person that's full of trust. And vow makers and vow requirers, that is typically their problem, is trust. They, don't, they, have, they have trust issues. And Jephthah has trust issues for a reason. 
And so this is how he deals with those issues. He says, I'm going to take this vow before the Lord. It's not necessary, but for Jephthah, that's how he dealt with his trust issues. Is play, I want to formally put this before God in a form of an oath or a vow. And for some people, they do that. Uh, they don't, don't need to, but for some people, that's the means by which they will address those issues. I think there's better means, but that, that is a means to do that. Okay, we're going to finish up Jethro next week. Sorry I went long again. don't know how this is happening. Um, let's have a word of prayer. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us, and thank you for the account here. Lord, we pray that we might uh, not let our life's experiences dictate, nor let them be our excuse for being full of bitterness, resentment, um, but rather that we might um, have the spirit of Jephthah, of Joseph, that holds people to account, certainly, but that also is ready to serve you and serve even those who have done us injury. And we know the greatest service we can give them is to give them the gospel. And so Lord, as uh, a people that you have called upon and, and told that we would suffer persecution and that we are to love those, to care for those that persecute us um, and do them good, Lord, we know that we need to be ready to not take vengeance and revenge, but let you be the judge, and we might seek their welfare with the gospel. And Lord, we do pray for our brethren in lands today that have open, violent opposition. And we pray that you might give them that spirit of Jephthah, of Joseph, that seeks to um, let you be judge and keep giving people the gospel, knowing that they will be held accountable for it before you. And strengthen us, and it is not in our human nature to do that. We just want to be bitter and take revenge. That's, that's our natural man. But Lord, we thank you for that supernatural work you've done in us. And we pray that we might live accordingly uh, until the day of judgment of your throne. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.